Gresham College presents Singers in the Making of Europe by Professor Christopher Page. I'm going to begin with a robbery that is alleged to have taken place really not very far from here. And it was in the year 1143. The scene for this is the Priory of St. Bartholomew at Smithfield, which of course is not far, as I say, and the Norman church still stands, it will be known, I'm sure, to many of you. Now, at the time that concerns me in this story, Smithfield is an ill-favored place of executions and abattoirs, as it was long to remain. Now, the thieves on this occasion broke into the church, but they were not so very rapacious, not so very thieving. They took no plate, no chalices, that is, no vestments. All they wanted was a book. The only thing they stole was an antiphona, a volume of plain song and an essential work of reference, of course, for the singers whose task it was to perform the service hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year in Aeternum until God decided it was enough. Well, as the house chronicle of the priory records, the book was very necessary for them that should sing in the church. Once the loss was reported, the prior and the canons searched for it, of course, without success. But that same night, the patron of the house, St. Bartholomew, visited the prior in his chamber and gave him all the information he needed to recover it. He said that the prior should saddle up his horse early next morning and go into the city of London, then make his way to the Jewish quarter, marked today, of course, by the street of old Jewry. He was then to loose the reins and let the horse wander. But the horse, of course, would be guided by St. Bartholomew himself. And the prior followed these commands, and in the morning he did find the book, the stolen book, in the house of a Jewish merchant. Well, such at least is the story. And here's another. It's told by Geoffrey Chaucer, who's often thought of today as a genial author, a very companionable, ambling sort of poet, and in many ways he is. And yet this is a Canterbury tale I tell with some reluctance. A Christian child of tender years is learning to sing an antiphon in honor of the Virgin Mary. He rehearses it to himself as he passes through a Jewish quarter on the way home. The Jews are infuriated by this eruption of Christian plainsong into their district, especially since it's a Marian chant in honor of the Virgin Mary, and is therefore an offensive celebration of the Israelite God taking human flesh. They capture the child as he passes and cut his throat, only to find that he continues to sing, revealing his whereabouts to the Christians with predictable consequences. <coughs> the chant he sings is Alma Redemptoris Mater. Well, those two stories are told in different ways, though they're alike in that they both charge the Jews with crimes they certainly did not commit. And there's something else they share. <coughs> they evoke a Latin Christendom, where the chant of singers rises in a constant reverberation of sound that continues when the markets are closed, and when the city gates are shut after the curfew. 
In both stories, the consensus of monasteries, churches, working to that end is so closely identified with the proper social order that it's a crime, a theft, or a murder to silence the voices, and even then, they break out again. The book is found. The child, the corpse, sings. What's more, there's nothing in the identity of the criminals to stir fresh fears, only to confirm old hatreds. The culprits of the Jews, contained for the most part by their designated quarter of the city, the old Jewry, the London Jewish ghetto of the Middle Ages, and by legislation that curtails their freedom. The disturbing possibility of disharmony within the Christian community itself doesn't arise, or so it seems. Well, you won't be surprised to hear that there was a great deal of variation in the chanting of Western Europe, in the melodies, in the manner of performing them, in the saints that were venerated, apart, of course, from a very large international core of saints like the Virgin Mary, eventually Thomas Beckett, and so on. There were also pockets of determined individual tradition, Milan, Toledo, just to name two. So it's not my purpose to suggest that medieval singers, much as I admire them, as must be clear by now, that they achieved the impossible and created a homogeneous body of chant for the Latin West. I'm not going to say that. They were too often too particularist in their ambitions, too keen to escape the attentions of a local, an authority of a local bishop, for example to suggest that they would be so completely conforming. And yet, what I do want to say is that the idea of a universal plain song repertoire increasingly shaped the way in which Latin Christians after 1200 envisaged the larger world in which they lived. Despite the large number of minor and not so minor discrepancies between the usages of different churches or the fractures sometimes painful, caused by individual histories at Milan, Toledo, and elsewhere. So it's not the measure of demonstrable unity achieved that matters here, though there was a high measure of it, but rather the willingness to believe that Christians are worshipping in essentially the same way and chanting essentially the same melodies in a place increasingly called the Latin world, Latinitas, You knew you were in Christian territory, you might say, where singers in monasteries, friaries, and other churches knew the antiphon in Chaucer's story, Alma Redemptoris Mater.
By the time of our poet Geoffrey Chaucer in the 14th century, Chaucer died in 1400, I remind you, and indeed long before much of Western Europe used a liturgy in Latin that was widely regarded as Roman, and I've tried to explore some of the ways in this course of lectures how that happened. You might say, and I think many contemporaries would have said, that to spread that liturgy was to accept Christ's charge to his apostles that they should go out into the whole world. The task of lords, missionaries, and indeed of all pious Christians, if they had the means, was to expand the bounds of the faith. And that could mean founding a hospital or a monastery in a place where there were none before, or perhaps a military adventure that might require conquest, colonization, and indeed the shedding of blood. And the, the Latin expression, dilatare terminos, to expand the bounds, dilatare terminos, to expand the bounds, was considered to be as apt for the dissemination of the Catholic faith into pagan territory as it was for the spread of the accompanying feudal jurisdiction that often went with it, kept in place by armed knights. But I think the underlying metaphors of thought, and don't you think it's often very revealing, the, the metaphors that a certain civilization chooses to express some of its most germane and passionate concerns, the underlying metaphors of thought were not really so much martial as really agricultural. Without liturgy, without singers and priests, there was no cultus in any sense of the word, no cult at the altar and no cultivation. The words, of course, have the, the same root, cult and cultivation, as indeed culture. Now, the association of the two, cult and cultivation of land, was really profound. Although many convents and friaries were built in cities and towns, we've got the remains of them all over London, despite the ravages of war and fire, the imagery of claiming barren territory for the gospel or of colonizing lands infested with thieves and devils was really very potent and was associated with many of these foundations not least because they were sometimes built for travelers, that's what a medieval hospital was often for, in places far from any other form of protection or support. So in parts of Spain, for example, where, as you can imagine, the issue of populating empty or formerly Moorish territory with Christians could be especially pressing, the charters of hospitals and other docu uh, documents repeatedly emphasize, and I would imagine sometimes exaggerate, the remoteness of the location chosen for the new foundation. So we hear of houses found in places, and I quote, once overgrown with forest and frequented by robbers, very dangerous to travelers, but now fertile and pleasant. In the year 1103, King Alfonso VI of Spain granted funds to the bishop and clergy of Oviedo to build a hospital on a mountainous site. And the foundation charter describes it as a region of vast solitude. That's an allusion, in fact, to a, a verse of Deuteronomy. A vast solitude that would now be populated with pilgrims and other wayfarers. As Otto of Bamberg, the apostle of Pomerania, pressed forward through what is now eastern Germany, he was regarded as a celestial gardener, pulling up evil by the roots and planting good 
where the power of devils had once sprouted forth like pestilent weeds. Where the seeds of the gospel and choral liturgy had not yet fallen on fertile ground, nature herself was barren of harvest, void and even corrupt, producing monstrosities like the dog-headed men, the Sinocephali, whom Adam of Bremen, the chronicler, reported had been seen in the Russian slave markets, half-naked and yapping a form of human speech. In parts of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, where the work of conquest is especially well documented, a Christian headquarters existed in what was then the stockade settlement of Riga, where merchants, knights and Cistercian monks with their singers set out to explore the surrounding countryside and, I quote, you can tell what's coming, sow the seed of the gospel. Going where no apostle had ever been, they baptized and laid out parishes while the merchants sought out the trading stations for fur, amber, and slaves, and singers went with them. One chronicle shows monks singing the sequence at mass while hostile pagan horsemen gallop around their church. Another has them chanting the responses, and I quote, but half alive when supplies were short in winters so severe that the extremities of the body froze. In an especially vivid passage, a document called the Livonian Rhymed Chronicle describes a party of merchants striking out along the river Davina, taking care to have with them a wise man who can read and chant the service. And if a single image can express the work of the Latins in this and other frontier territories, I think this one of a clerical or monastic singer taking a boat with knights and merchants into a northern heart of darkness will serve very well. Now, to evangelists in the field, like that Otto of Bamberg in the early years of the 12th century, the plain chant of singers in a clerical party was a useful tool, together, of course, with what went with it. The material opulence of incense, vestments made of expensive dyed or embroidered textiles that could catch the eye of many a pagan. Indeed, Otto once entered a dangerous district accompanied by wagons of vestments, missiles, and other things, and his party was encircled as night fell by a man of local men who came upon them in the forest. It was a dangerous moment, very dangerous. He escaped death because the leader of the pagan group was incidentally a Christian, but on another occasion, when he and his clergy were not so lucky, they owed their lives to their singers. Threatened with imminent martyrdom, the clerics in Otto's entourage began to sing psalms and chants, and the pagan warriors stopped to listen, seemingly amazed. Their hearts were softened, so the story goes, and they relented. Now, in 11th century Spain, where frontiers could be shifting but sharply drawn, frontier, frontier monasteries, which of course is essentially a a constant choir with a logistic support, frontier monasteries were spoken of in the same breath as new bridges or castelos de fronteros de mauros, castles on the frontiers with the Moors. In the 11th century, Argon, implanting a monastery, and I use the word implanting with a metaphorical vigor, I'm sure you now understand, implanting a monastery with its singers was work that consolidated the Christian presence near a disputed margin, just like building a castellum or a castle. 
Far to the east in the Levant, there were isolated attempts to establish a liturgical frontier well before the first crusade that did the work, but to no lasting effect, in the Holy Land. When Abbot Richard of St. Van, who died in 1046, journeyed to Antioch, he pressed on into one of the neighboring Islamic emirates and began singing masses outside of the walls of the cities he encountered amidst a hail of stones, while a group of clerics sang the choral responses at a safe distance. Those who manned the walls of those cities had good reason to be alarmed, for they were seeing the extreme periphery of an encroaching Latin civilization, heavily armored, men encased in plate metal that had never been seen. And the people on the walls saw that civilization first as a priest and a group of singers. How was all this possible? How has any of this, in a way, been possible? Well, much of the answer lies with something that most of us, perhaps for all I know, all of us use every day. I mean, the musical staff. Now, it's important to emphasize once more that the question of what would have made musical notation useful to any particular singer in the Middle Ages has no simple answer. It's a question about different ways of living some form of common life, a question about the use of time, about who is available to teach you, how long do they have to do it, what is the relation between memory and written record. But you can imagine that for the purposes of writing a treatise designed to teach or codify, and a great deal of that went on, it was important to have something to illustrate a discussion so that those who read a teacher's account would know what he meant, even though he wasn't there to sing it, to sing what he meant. Well, one idea was to make a diagram of the strings of a musical instrument, such as a lyre or a harp, and then write the syllables of the chant on the string one would need to pluck to get the result. And you have an example of that at the top of the first page of the handout. There you have the lines representing, as it were, a large lyre or harp, between them, you have the letters T and S to represent tone and semitone, the, sign, the, the size of the musical interval between them. And the syllables are written above the string, so to speak, you would need to pluck to get the result. What those strange characters are that look like Fs, sometimes the right way up and sometimes uh, the wrong way up, what they are, we don't need to bother with now. But I could explain it to anyone who wishes to know afterwards. But you can see the basic idea. Now this isn't, is it? This isn't a musical staff. And why isn't it? For one really very simple reason, which is that the spaces don't mean anything. The spaces are just air between the strings where you write the syllables. The spaces have no meaning. Well, it so happens strange though it may seem, that we know a very good deal about the man who claims, in effect, to have invented the spaces and probably did so in the decades immediately after the year 1000. He had an immensely high opinion of himself, though he thought singers, I'm afraid to tell Catherine, he thought singers to be the most foolish of individuals. 
for their greatest labors were likely to produce the smallest results. They con were condemned to pass many years trying to learn the chants by heart and not succeeding. Now, this man's name was Guido, Guido Avarezzo. He was now, I suppose, what we'd call an Italian. He's often spoken of today as a monk, but near contemporaries called him a hermit. And I think that's possibly closer to the mark. Now, I don't mean that he lived in a hut on the edge of a forest. He actually lived in the monastery of Pomposa in Italy, and at one time he served the bishop of Arezzo, hence his name. But he did believe, and this is really very important, he did believe, as many in his day were beginning to believe, that a life of prayerful solitude, possibly at times in a remote cell, was necessary to understand why a thorough reform of the church being so impure was necessary. And he thought that only those who lived such an ascetic life could acquire the moral authority to speak out. Purity, in other words, was one of his great themes, as it was of many reformers in this, the 11th century, one of the great ages of as it were, the wave of conscience in the church breaking and thinking that we must do better. The purity of clergy, not corrupted by the touch of money. They hadn't bought their positions. Not corrupted by the touch of blood, which of course they were forbidden as clerics to shed. Not touched by the corruption of sex, which they were required to refrain from. Taking various kinds of graphic techniques that were already in use, Guido configured the ancestor of the notation we still use to ensure a purity of chant. You can see how deep and extensive are the wellsprings of this invention that you all know. It's far more than a practical device. It's a whole way of, as it were, turning switches on a complete civilization. He hoped that monks and clergies would now have more time for prayer, for the recitation of psalms, for nocturnal vigils, for staying awake through the small hours in prayer, and for the other duties that he calls opera pietatis, the works of devotion. So, Guido set himself the task, and this is how he did it, of combining the two forms of notation that were then in use. That's essentially what he did. On one hand, there were the neumes, and you see those as the next item on your handout, the first color panel. These are extremely delicate strokes of the pen that drew the movement of pitch and were associated, there's no doubt, with certain kinds of vocal nuance. You can see that they are very delicate and subtle. They encode various kinds of uh, refinements, not all of which, I think it's fair to say, are completely understood, though many are. But when they're written, as you see them in that first color panel on your handout, they show the direction of the pitch. They say, go up, go down, but they can't tell you by how much. The other technique in use is the one we still employ where you represent notes by the letters A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on. Now that, of course, gave a clear indication of pitch. You could say this melody goes A, B, C, B, A. A, B, C, B, A, that tells you roughly what the, tells you exactly what the tune is, but of course it conveys no nuance. 
The alphabetic letters don't have any of the fluid subtlety and delicacy of those almost nervous strokes of the pen that we saw a moment ago. So Guido associated the two methods. And you have uh, an example of the result at the very bottom of the first page of your handout. What you have there is a, a series of letters. You can see the letters at the beginning of the far left, D, F, A, C. That's the alphabetic notation. And what we think of as the stave lines, as the fundamental thing, are actually only in one case, that's the one for F, uh, written out. You can see it's traced in red ink. The others actually, in the strict sense, aren't written at all. They're just scored into the parchment with a stylus. And you can see, I think, then, that what the stave lines do, you see, to us it seems the lines are what it's all about. But all the lines are doing is giving you a way of perpetuating across the page the letter which is at issue, the letter of the alphabet notation that's at issue. It's also technically, I'd be interested in your views on this, it's also technically a kind of graph. You've got, as it were, pitch on an x-axis and sequence of time on a y-axis, and if this qualifies as a graph principle, I imagine it doesn't quite, but if it does, it's one of the earliest uh, appearances of the graph principle, I think, in Western writing. Well, if you turn over, you see what this could come to. What you have at the top of your page is a scrap of notation from uh, a manuscript which shows works by the first female composer of the Western tradition who I've featured in these talks before and make no apology for appearing, uh, featuring again, Hildegard of Bingen. There you see you have got, now the lines have been inked, but the line for F is written in red to distinguish it, and there's a little dot placed at the start of it. Five notes up, as you would expect, is the C, as it should be. So that's a C clef. We've got something now that's starting to look like clefs. But what this allows you to do, as you can see, is retain the fluidity of the neumes. So you've both got pitch specificity and you have got the fluidity of the pen strokes. You've got both together. And that's really what it was all about. And that's how our stave notation really first started. And the, the example you're looking at almost certainly passed under Hildegard's eyes because it's from a manuscript that she almost certainly supervised. And it's thanks to the preservation of her works in this notation of surpassing delicacy and clarity that we are able to hear her music, such as her notable sequence for St. Maximin, Columba Aspexit, of which your handout gives you text and translation.
Hildegard, of course, was never officially canonized, though there is a canonization dossier which includes the eyewitness testimony of a woman who saw Hildegard walking around her cloister singing to herself one of her known chants, O Virga at Diadema. It's a unique glimpse into the way Hildegard actually used her compositions, and you might think it's not really performance at all, but uh, a prayerful running through of the words and the music, much like you just heard, I think, for Hildegard's own prayerful purpose. The Cistercian monks, those who built our own great abbeys that you'll know, I'm sure, of Fountains and Rivo, among others, now, alas, fragments, were especially active in spreading this new system of, with staff lines. Much that was authentic but had been lost, they believed, and it had to be put back. So they had their communities of lay brothers who created farms, built byres and barns and dug, dug canals and ditches, and the Cistercians therefore became a major force in that uh, spread of agriculture and animal husbandry into areas that were often frontier zones, taking the stave with them. And the system was also on the move from the end of the 11th century as, knight was, as knights from many parts of Christendom went east. The Council of Clermont, convened by Urban II in 1095 to conduct business, included the proclamation of what I think in the period would have been called an armed and penitential pilgrimage to Jerusalem at the behest of St. Peter, or what we now call the First Crusade. This was responsible, as you can imagine, for the creation of Latin bishoprics and for the slow process of staffing churches in the conquered territories with singers that followed the unexpected success of that crusade in 1099. By the early 1100s, priests who celebrated Mass in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem were using books with delicate forms of French staff notation copied in the Latin Kingdom but using models shipped out from the West. And we heard a chant from one of those manuscripts in the second lecture of this series. Would it have been possible to do all this if the whole process of learning the chant had not been so speeded up by the advent of the stave? I think not. And plain song, in another way, had achieved an extraordinary status in Europe. After all, monks, nuns, clergy now shared a means to record of events that could be understood wherever the account was read, not just in terms of time measured by the hourglass or the water clock, but also in the light of eternity. Let me give you my favorite example. In the year 1202, Abbot William of Eskil in Zeeland died on the eve of Easter Saturday. And one of his disciples traced his last hours through the liturgical services in which the saint barely had the strength to engage. On Maundy Thursday, William tried to perform the ceremony of washing the brother's feet, the mandatum ceremony in imitation of Christ, but was too weak. Led to his chamber, he eventually asked for his bed to be carried into the choir so he could take part in Easter services. At Matins, the choir had just begun the third responsory, Dum Transisset Sabatum, when the, the Saturday had passed, when the sign was given that he was now at the point of death. His life began to pass away as the Sabbath passed. Dawn broke, and after singing the responsory Ut Venientes Ungerent Jesum, describing the anointing of Christ's body, the prior and some of the brothers anointed William 
with holy oil. He was then dressed in penitential clothes and laid, as was normal in monastic communities for someone at the point of death, on a bed of cinders. He died soon afterwards, rising to a new life on the day of the resurrection, as the choir tearfully but triumphantly sang the appointed chant to end the service before the beginning of the service of Lords, Te Deum Laudamus, we praise you, O Lord. Now, William passed his life in one of the most remote abbeys of Latin Christendom, but by the time of his death, there were hundreds, in fact, there were thousands of churches and monasteries where that account would have been understood in its fullest and most moving depth because the books in those houses prescribed essentially the same sequence of chants for the same services. The compiler, whom I've been paraphrasing, perceives the meaning of what happened, or what he claims had happened, and the facts of what happened in terms of the reading and chants. The events, you might say, happened in time, and yet also out of time. Another way in which singers helped to create a common culture in medieval Europe is so discreet that it could easily be missed. Now, since each day of the liturgical year had its chants assigned, reference to a specific chant, as you can imagine, would fix a day when something occurred or was planned to take place. The chants used in this way are almost invariably introit antiphons that begin the Mass and therefore lodge, you might think, more easily in the memory. One of the earliest examples shows St. Anselm referring to his consecration as Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1093, I quote, on the Sunday when Populus Sion is sung. After 1100, it really becomes increasingly common for chroniclers and others to place an event, I quote, on the Sunday of Laetare Jerusalem, sung on the fourth Sunday in Lent, or in relation to other introits such as Oculi Mei, third Sunday in Lent, Dum Pontificatus, Pentecost Sunday, and so on. Indeed, in 1131, the introit which you're going to hear to close this lecture, Laetare Jerusalem, identifies an appointed day in a letter of Pope Innocent II, showing that this is now being used to, as it were, settle a day throughout the Latin church. The Pope could send out a message and say, meet me on the day where we sing that. And everybody knew what day that was. The repertoire of liturgical singers had joined the movement of heavenly bodies as a cycle that defined the passage of time. Long afterwards, when even much more organized attempts to hold Jerusalem for the Latins had failed, the Franciscan friar Galvano de Levanto lamented, I quote, there is only the abominable melody of Saracens in the Holy Land where there should be the worship of Jesus Christ and chant. The silencing of Latin Christian music is the most vivid means he can find to express the loss of the Christian East, and of course it was lost. With the fall of Acre in 1291, the last major Christian bastion in Utrema, with that loss, the muezzin and the minaret silenced the cantor and the bell tower. In that same year, another Italian friar traveled through much of what is now Iraq and found a looted missal, a chant book, on sale in Al-Mausil, north of Baghdad, almost certainly looted from the churches of Acre. The attempt to extend the chant of Latin singers had failed in Palestine and Syria, and now its dismembered materials were adrift in the bazaars of the Orient. 
So there were many failures, not all of them regrettable. The musical stave was a Latin Christian invention and was confined for many centuries to the Occidental lands where Latin was the exclusive language of liturgical singing. It provided the means for an aggressively expansionist civilization to train singers quickly so that the flag of Latin liturgy, you might say, could be planted in Spain and Livonia in the Holy Land and in a great many hospitals and chapels in rural or indeed wild locations. There's something to lament in all of that, as there is in all colonizing enterprises. But perhaps there's something to laud. The world has the passions of J.S. Bach and the late quartets of Beethoven because monks, clergy, and knights of the central Middle Ages drained marshes, took boats along uncharted rivers, and attempted to reclaim at huge cost to themselves and to others with singers in their train the holiest shrines of their faith. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.